One of my seminary professors used to note that uh, professional baseball players get mi paid millions of dollars if they can step up to the plate and get a base hit one out of every three times uh, at bat. I think that's changed now. It's more like one out of every four times you, uh, you get the big bucks in um, professional baseball. But um, Dr. Belshaw used to say, you guys will be um, speaking to seminarians. You guys will be expected to hit a home run every time you step up to the plate for a lot less money. Obviously, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Ryan aren't in it for the money, but we are the beneficiaries of their, their great batting averages, and we're thankful for your faithful and wonderful ministry of the Word in this place, for your example of humility and godly living in the shepherding of this flock. And then it just doesn't seem fair that they're young and handsome and have these great beards, um, you know. Dr. Howard Hendricks used to say that we preachers are paid to be good and the rest of you are good for nothing. <laughs> and I have to say that you have been good to Cynthia and me even though most of you don't even know who we are. Um, thank you for your prayers for my wife and me through some difficult days. Um, uh, and thanks to the uh, working of God through your prayers and those of many others, and the medical professionals, God led us to. Cynthia is doing much, much better. So thank you very much for your prayers. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Lord, it is with awe that we come into the audience of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, the sovereign of all that is and ever will be. And Lord, as we meet together in this place and open your word, we beg that you would Speak to our hearts, open our eyes to see and to hear and to understand. Lord, we are grateful for this congregation, for this church, for the ministry that happens here week after week, month after month, year after year, and Lord, you are faithful through it all, and we thank you. May your spirit work in our midst this morning, I ask. In the name of Jesus, amen. A few weeks ago, I stepped into this building um, and had received a bulletin at the door from Tim, I think, most likely. And as I sat in my chair down here and opened it, um, I noticed, I saw that the speaker for today was going to be retired pastor, Bob Mordhorst. I was shocked. I stared at those words for a long time. Uh, I couldn't believe it. Not that I was going to be the speaker today. Jeff had asked me early in the summer uh, to, to be up here today. I, I was okay with that, but it was the first time I had seen that designation, retired pastor in print, and it caught me by surprise. Um, <laughs> Frankly, it hit me really hard. Uh, I got a lump in my throat, and, um, and I wasn't sure I was going to keep it all together. Mostly, I didn't want to believe it. Um, but there it was in black and beige, I think was the color of the bulletin that day. Black and beige. Um, 
I still remember seeing those words for the first time, retired pastor Bob Mordhorst. Retired? Retired? <laughs> R-E-T-I-R-E-D. Retired. Somehow I never expected to see that word in front of my name. True, I hadn't preached them since the end of October last year. Retired? I had been told I was retired, and I had even told people I was retired, but seeing it written out was somehow different. Uh, and it, it, it had a, a profound effect on me. It was right there before my eyes. Retired pastor Bob Mordhorst. I had to decide whether I would believe what I was seeing or deny what I guess should be obvious. And during the following week is, uh, is when I started thinking about the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning. It's about believing what we see or even believing when we can't see because we've been granted the gift of vision from above. Please turn with me in your copy of our Father's Word to the Gospel of Mark in the 8th chapter. And when you find that 8th chapter, go down to verse 22. Verse 22, please. And they, speaking of the 12, uh, including uh, uh, as well as Jesus, they came to Bethsaida, and they, meaning the crowds of people who always gathered wherever Jesus was, they brought a blind man to him and entreated him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I am seeing them like trees walking about. Then again he laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. During his earthly ministry in Palestine, Jesus healed a number of people who were afflicted with blindness. It was one of the evidences that he was the promised Messiah. Jesus himself read these words from Isaiah's prophecy as his public ministry began. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in the 21st verse of that chapter, um, uh, Jesus said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. Turn over, turn back if you would please, keep your place in Mark because we're going back there eventually. But um, to Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison and he sends a message to Jesus asking if he is the Messiah or if they should be looking for someone else. And Jesus responds this way in the middle of the fourth verse of Matthew chapter 11. 
Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Jesus expects John to process the visual evidence and arrive at the obvious conclusion Jesus is the Messiah that they've been looking for. We don't really know how many blind people Jesus healed. We are given the details of only a handful of such miracles on the part of the Messiah. If you're still in Matthew 11, turn back to chapter 9, where we find one such example. Verse 27, Matthew 9, 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. And after he had come into the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Be it done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See here, let no one know about this. But they went out and spread the news about him in all the land. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, this is just an aside that Jesus tells us to go, and we don't tell anybody. And he tells them to be quiet, and they tell everybody. <laughs> Maybe uh, there's some reverse psychology needs to happen here. But uh, we don't know... Uh, how Jesus healed these men other than with just a simple touch. In Luke 18, Jesus healed a blind beggar beside the Jericho road by simply saying, receive your sight, your faith has made you well. And in John 9, Jesus gave sight to a man born blind by mixing some soil with saliva, applying the mixture to the man's eyes, and instructing him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And when the man obeyed, he was able to see for the very first time. So what's going on here in Mark 8? In every other instance that we know of, Jesus gave sight to blind people in one step. Here, he did it in two steps. Why? Did this man not have faith that Jesus could heal him like those guys in Matthew and Luke? Or was there some lack of obedience on his part such as was required of the man in John chapter 9. This is what I've called on the outline that um, is inserted in your bulletin, a mysterious miracle. For some reason, it takes two attempts to heal this man. Did Jesus fail the first time? Did he not have quite enough power to get the job done? Or did he do it this way on purpose? You know, I never understood this miracle until, and this is not going to seem very spiritual, but a number of years ago now, uh, a movie came out of Hollywood titled At First Sight, starring Val Kilmer and Mira Sorvino. Uh, any of you ever see it? Oh, there's one hand, two hands. Um, probably others that can't remember, but... Because <laughs> uh, that was, what, what, 20 years ago almost now? But I never saw the movie myself, but at the time of its release back in 1999, our local newspaper in Bellingham ran an article 
telling the true story that formed the basis for the movie. And that article, as I read it, the Lord just opened my eyes to what was going on in this miracle in Mark chapter 8. The dateline is um, Sunday, July 17th, 1999. Uh, Shirley Jennings, known by his friends and family as Cheryl, was born in 1940 in Bedford County, Virginia, and was a normal active toddler until the age of three when he contracted three illnesses all at the same time. Um, he, He got meningitis, polio, and cat scratch fever. I didn't even know cat scratch fever was real. I've heard of it, but I didn't know that it was something you could get. But young Cheryl lapsed into a coma that lasted for two weeks. And on emerging from that coma, his legs were paralyzed and his eyesight was damaged. His 17-year-old mother enlisted family members who over the next two to three years, uh, I'm kind of giving you the shortened version of this article, they helped Cheryl relearn to crawl and to walk. But his eyesight continued to deteriorate, and by the time he was seven years or eight years of age, Cheryl was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, a progressive, untreatable disease of the retina that causes blindness. By age 10, Cheryl could only distinguish light and darkness. And from then on, uh, and the article says, Jennings learned to live sightless. He attended the Virginia School for the Deaf and Blind, and later the YMCA School of Swedish Massage. Over time, he became resigned to his blindness and settled into a job as a masseur at the DeKalb, Georgia YMCA. Then in the the late 1980s, he learned that an old girlfriend, Barbara, had been divorced from her husband, so he called her up, and they resumed the relationship that they'd had 20 years uh, earlier and, and were soon married. As the new Mrs. Jennings, Barbara began urging Cheryl to visit her ophthalmologist, Dr. Trevor Woodhams. Cheryl kept making excuses, but Barbara wouldn't give up, so finally he relented. Upon examining Jennings, Dr. Woodhams discovered extremely dense cataracts on his eyes, but more surprisingly, he found that Cheryl's optic nerve was still viable despite the supposed degradation of the retinitis pigmentosa. Dr. Woodhams believed Cheryl would regain some vision by the removal of the cataract, so the surgery was scheduled for one eye at a time with several weeks between each procedure. Was it successful? Well, listen to this passage from the article. I I typed it all out on a piece of paper so I could mark what I want to read to you this morning. But um, uh, listen to, to these words. The Jenningses say the movie is surprisingly accurate on what is to them the most crucial point. For those who have learned to live without it, the gift of eyesight can be a tremendous, overwhelming burden. Did you process that? For those who have learned to live without it, the gift of eyesight can be a tremendous, overwhelming burden. When Jennings regained his sight, his doctors discovered he had lost virtually all visual memory. His eyes were functioning, yet the visual cues he was receiving seemed at odds with sounds, smells, and textures. Faces were meaningless blurs. Airplanes flying at 30,000 feet seemed to skim inches over his head. 
He could not recognize a whole tree, let alone a forest. It took him six months to put a tree together, to recognize that leaves and branches and trunk were a tree. Six months to figure that out. At this point, Barbara Jennings' father called in a neurologist, Dr. Sachs, who came to Atlanta with another ophthalmologist, a um, Dr. Wasserman, to examine Cheryl. Together, they determined that Jennings had been improperly diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, though he did have some congenital retinal problems, as well as nerve damage caused by the meningitis. The cataracts had developed later. Dr. Woodhams recalls how Jennings first operation in September 1991 to remove the cataract in the right eye was nothing heroic. The day after surgery, Woodhams removed the eye patch. Instead of reacting with joy, Jennings was dazed. Undoubtedly, he could see, but he obviously was experiencing a tremendous sensory overload. I was trying to figure out what everything was, he said. I had no idea what to do, Barbara said. People expected him to be fully sighted immediately. Those sensory difficulties worsened despite a second operation several weeks later that removed the cataract from the left eye. At 2080 or 2100, Jennings' eyesight wasn't perfect. This didn't account, however, for his inability to visually recognize even familiar things such as his cat unless he touched them. Woodhams began to realize that the problem was rooted in Jennings' brain, not in his eyes. What we've seen here is nothing we didn't learn in high school biology. <laughs> These little orbs in our skulls called eyes do not see in the literal sense of the word. Our eyeballs are literally light receptors. Vision takes place up here between your ears, somewhere. Uh, and beginning at birth, our brains are storing images which we eventually learn to identify and can readily recall whenever we see them again. A brick, for example, or a chair, or a plant, or a person, are all things we've learned to see by experience. Subsequently, every time an image is transmitted from the eye, to the brain, we instantly and unconsciously access our mental memory banks and we see. Listen to one more paragraph and then we'll put this article aside. As for Jennings' problems incorporating sight into his other senses, the doctors decided he would simply have to learn everything from the beginning as infants do. The eyes and ears in themselves work automatically, but that's not enough, Sachs explained. What the ears and eyes provide is only the beginning of a long process of images that has to be digested and processed and incorporated and remembered. Um, our task now is to go back to the miracle in Mark chapter 8, and, and try to make sense of the mystery. Uh, look again at verse 22 of Mark chapter 8. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and entreated him to touch him. 
And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? In this first phase of the miracle, Jesus restores a blind man's eyes. We don't know whether this man had retinitis pigmentosa, whether he had dense cataracts or some other physical problems with his eyes. But in this first phase of the miracle, Jesus repaired his light receptors, his eyeballs, so that he could receive visual stimuli. But he is unable to process the images striking the vision center of the brain. In the sightless world in which he had lived for an unknown period of time, perhaps for his whole life, he had formed a mental image through his other senses of what a man looked like and what a tree looked like. But suddenly his brain is being flooded with light and color and shape and motion and he's not sure what he's looking at so that when Jesus asks what he sees, the, the man utters those senseless words, I see men like trees walking. And that's when Jesus moves to the second phase of the healing process, verse 25. Then again he laid his hands upon his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. In this second phase of the miracle, do you see what's going on? I trust you're with me. I haven't lost you somewhere or you're not all asleep. But um, in part one of the miracle, Jesus restores the function of the blind man's eyes. In part two, Jesus renews the blind man's mind. Maybe programs would be a better word there, or even we, we could say Jesus uploaded uh, to his brain. Uh, in, in the second phase of the miracle, Jesus uploaded, as it were, new vision software to the blind man's mental hardware, which included every stored image he would need to see anything and everything clearly. As our creator, Jesus knows that sight takes place not in the eyes, but in the mind. So when Jesus applies the saliva and touches this nameless blind man the first time, his light receptors are miraculously restored to their original design. However, though he can see, he doesn't really know what he is seeing until Jesus touches him a second time bringing his mind into sync with his eyes so that the gift of vision is fully recovered. That leaves us with a pressing question, doesn't it? Why? Why did Jesus do this miracle in these two steps or in these two phases? Evidently, every other time recorded in the Gospels when Jesus healed blind people, he simultaneously fixed their eyes and programmed the vision center of their brains. So why this scenario in Mark chapter 8? The answer to that question is wrapped up in the context, in the events leading up to this miracle, a miracle which effectively becomes an um, object lesson for the disciples and an object lesson for us this morning. Let's back up to verse 14 of Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 8, verse 14 of this 8th chapter, and observe 
a baffling blindness. Uh, I am going to read verses 14 to 21. And as I do, please watch for the caution against unbelief and the condition of unbelief. Mark 8, verse 14. And they, speaking of the twelve, had forgotten to take bread. They didn't have more than one loaf in the boat with them. They are crossing the Sea of Galilee from east to west. Verse 15, and he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? By the way, Jesus just healed a deaf man before this, um, these events. So they have that in their memory banks as well. Verse 19 End uh, of verse 18, and do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basket, baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. He said, don't you get it? Don't you get it? Are you blind? Don't you see, people, what is going on here? Back in chapter 6 on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread, you remember, and two small fish. And when the multitudes finished eating their fill, uh, uh, the disciples filled 12 baskets with the leftovers. This eighth chapter opened with Jesus feeding the 4,000 people on the eastern shore of the same lake with seven loaves and a few small fish. Uh, This time, after everyone had eaten their fill, uh, there are seven baskets full of food left. Then, at verse 10, the Pharisees, having witnessed Jesus performing countless miracles, uh, which these Bible scholars surely knew were messianic signs, They come to Jesus asking for some kind of sign to prove that he is indeed the Messiah. It would be hilarious if it weren't so sad. Um, Though presented with undeniable visual evidence that Jesus was the Christ, uh, evidence they saw with their eyes, uh, but their minds did not interpret And so they come up with nonsensical things to say about Jesus. But it's not just the Pharisees who fail to see uh, what is right before their eyes. In that paragraph I just read, starting at verse 14, the Lord and his disciples are in their boat headed back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus wants to take advantage of a teaching moment from the ever uh, separate from the ever-present throngs of people, and he cautions his disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
In this context, leaven is unbelief. Herod's unbelief was discussed at length in chapter 6 of Mark. And the Pharisees have repeatedly revealed their unbelief in the face of a mountain of sensory evidence that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel. But the Lord's caution against unbelief catches the, the, the Jesus' closest followers in the very act. As Jesus talks about leaven there in the boat, the minds of his students, the disciples, drift to the topic of bread. Natural connection, right? Leaven? Oh, bread. Um, they go together like pie and ice cream or coffee and cookies. You're sympathetic with these guys, aren't you? You do the same thing. Pastor Jeff may use some metaphor to explain a concept he is presenting, and you get so caught up in the metaphor, you lose track of the subject at hand. Uh, right? Right. I know because I've been there. I sat in those pews, and I know what it's like. The mention of bread, the pie, the coffee, of cookies has some of you thinking about food instead of heaven right now, right? Take heart, Pastor Jeff. If it can happen to Jesus, it can happen to you <laughs> and me. Um, while Jesus is talking about the leaven of unbelief, his blind listeners are prompted to think about lunch and empty bellies and the fact that they only have one loaf of bread in the boat, and we're not talking a, a loaf of wonder bread. The loaf was a hard roll about the size of my fist with a minimum of 13 people in the boat. That's only about one bite per person. Picture the scene. Jesus is teaching on the subject about which he is passionate, unbelief. But the word leaven has given rise to hunger pangs among his students, and you can hear them whispering among themselves, Hey, Andy, did you bring any food? No, Pete, I thought you were bringing the groceries. No, that wasn't my job. That was your job. Well, maybe Thomas has something. They're whispering, not yelling like me, but um, I want you to hear me. Tommy, did you bring some lunch? Uh, no, but I, I, I sure am hungry. John's always prepared. Let's ask John. He probably brought some food with him. Yeah, guys, I brought one of these rolls left over from the feast the other day, but it's only enough for me. Sorry, nothing for you guys. Oh, great. That's just peachy. We'll never make it to the other side of the lake on one loaf of bread. Knowing that he has lost his audience, Jesus confronts the head the issue head on in that 17th verse, Jesus said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And beginning in the next verse, Jesus works the two-stage miracle to illustrate the fact that we need more than eyeballs to see spiritual truth. 
Twice now the disciples have seen Jesus feed thousands of hungry people with small amounts of food, but it never occurred to them that he could do the same for them. They suffered from the same condition of unbelief as the Pharisees, the very leaven Jesus had been talking about. Physical evidence all around them, but a dogged unbelief. Have you ever heard some of something that sounded so incredulous, so unbelievable, that you said or thought, I won't believe it unless I see it? Thomas did, you remember? After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room on a Sunday evening when Thomas was absent from the group. Later, the ten told Thomas that they'd seen the Lord and how he had really risen from the grave. And then Thomas uttered these words, which, had, which have branded him as doubting Thomas ever since. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe it. One week later, Jesus appeared to the disciples again, and this time Thomas was there. And immediately upon seeing Jesus, the doubt turned to certainty, and, uh, and doubting Thomas declared, my Lord and my God. Remember Jesus' reply? He said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen who have not seen me and yet believed. That's a blessing on you and me. We've never seen Jesus, but we believe, don't we? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? You don't have to see in order to believe. It is possible to believe without seeing. Just read Hebrews chapter 11 where the very de definition of faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That chapter goes on to cite numerous examples of people acting by faith, believing God even when they could only see with the eyes of faith. Verse 7 of Hebrews 11, for example, says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events, as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Over my years as a pastor, I would occasionally hear someone say something to the effect, if Jesus were just here now and I could witness his miracles, then I would believe. But you know what? The gospel accounts of the life of Christ reveal that seeing isn't necessarily believing. The Pharisees in Mark 8 or Exhibit A, they had seen countless signs um, proving Jesus was the Messiah, and yet their, uh, their unbelief was notorious. The disciples here in Mark chapter 8 are Exhibit B for us this, today. Uh, at least twice Jesus had fed thousands of people with just small amounts of food, and yet they didn't believe he could feed the 12 of them with one loaf. They had slipped into a mode of thinking that the miracles of Jesus were, for the, were, for, were public events. They were 
for the masses, but they had no application for their personal lives. But Jesus wanted them to know that his power and his resources were not just for the hungry people. They were available to them personally. And so Jesus asked them in verses 17 and 18, why are you discussing the fact that you don't have any bread? Don't you understand? Don't you perceive? Are your hearts hard having eyes you have seen? But you don't believe. What is the condition Jesus identifies that keeps us from seeing and understanding what God wants us to know? He says it's a hard heart, doesn't he? Oh, beloved, we need to pray for ourselves and for one another that our hearts would be open to what Jesus wants to teach us to what he wants us to know about himself and his care and his concern, not just for those people out there, but for me, for you personally. Jesus loves you. He longs to meet your needs if you'll trust him. Ultimately, this two-stage miracle in Mark 8 shows us that Jesus not only gives us spiritual eyesight, but spiritual insight to understand what the eyes of faith see in order that we might believe and obey. I want to invite you as we come to a conclusion this morning to turn to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1, where we will find Paul praying just such a prayer for the saints at Ephesus because he knew that unbelief, that spiritual blindness is common even among the saints. And it is a persistent problem. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to start reading at the third verse because I want you to see the riches that are yours as a child of God through faith in Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So stop thinking about lunch for a few moments and hear the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Hallelujah and amen. He lavished it upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in Christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Wow, I, I love this chapter. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. And if you are a child of God through faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, you are blessed beyond all you can ask or think. We read this. We see the words on the page with our eyes. But do we really believe them? Do we really understand what they mean for our lives? The apostles' prayer beginning at verse 18 addresses that issue. He prays, he prays that the eyes of our understanding would be open so that we might really see and take to heart what a personal relationship with Jesus Christ looks like and feels like and acts like. Look at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of, his, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul's prayer requests in those three verses lead to three questions we need to ask ourselves this morning. First, do you comprehend his hope? Do you comprehend his hope? Please read with me this prayer from the New International Version. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The hope of the believer in Christ is not like that of a child at Christmas hoping for a bike or a Barbie or a basketball. That is a wishful hope. This hope carries with it an assurance for the future. It is a confident hope, an assurance that what we hope for is already ours. We, we possess it by the work of Christ on Calvary and his resurrection from the dead. Our hope as disciples, of course, is the return of Christ for his bride, the church, and the promise of eternal life with God in heaven. This hope uh, to which we are called should be a dynamic force in our lives, encouraging us to be pure, obedient, and faithful. And this hope is not for somebody else. It is your hope. It is my hope. A hope each of us must see with the eyes of faith, understand with the mind of faith, and put into action with a life of faith. Our hope is a certainty which should motivate us to live like Christ today, uh, today because one day very soon, I believe, we're going to see him face to face. What a day that will be. You really believe that? Abraham did, and it caused him to live by faith, and therefore, according to Hebrews 11.10, um, to look forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. A second question Paul's prayer raises is this, do you comprehend his riches? I pray, Paul says, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. 
I want you to notice the language very carefully. It is not our inheritance in Christ. It is his inheritance in his holy people. His inheritance in us. This is an expression of the value God places in you personally. Many folks may look forward to an inheritance realized in terms of dollars and prophecy, I mean, and property, but Christ lives in heaven today in anticipation of an inheritance made up of you and me. Poor guy. <laughs> Not really, huh? You are of immense worth to Christ. If you really believe that, don't waste or squander your energies on things that really don't count for eternity. 1 Corinthians 6.19 declares, You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Finally, do you comprehend his power? I pray Paul continues there in Ephesians 1 that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power that raised Jesus from the dead stands ready to help all of God's children overcome the habits and heartaches that paralyze our lives and keep us from living in victory over sin. If we really see that truth clearly, we won't live impotent, defeated lives anymore. We open our Bibles and we read the marvelous stories of how the Lord miraculously worked in the lives of people. We see the power of Christ transforming them. We see his investment of love and care and compassion in those he will inherit for all eternity. And we see the hope that he brought into the midst of their misery and despair. And, that, and yet though we see it on the written page, we are like those disciples in the boat. We don't understand or we don't make the connection that the same Lord who does those great things for others will do them for us. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. The same Savior brings us a hope that will endure. He esteems us worthy to be his eternal inheritance, and he grants us access to his omnipotent power. Oh, beloved, we have eyes, but we don't see. We have ears, but we don't hear. We have hard hearts. It is a persistent problem. In the very next paragraph, after the healing of the blind man in Mark 8, Jesus asks his disciples who people say he is. And they report that some folks think he's John the Baptist. Others say that he might be Elijah or some other prophet. And Jesus asked them, them uh, who do you think I am? And Peter declares, you are the Christ. And in Matthew's account of that conversation, Jesus then replies, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter saw the evidence with his eyes and with vision from above supplied by God. He interpreted that visual data correctly, ascertaining that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. But the persistent problem of blindness rears its ugly head when in the very next paragraph, 
Jesus informs the disciples of his pending suffering and death. Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. Matthew supplies some of that verbal exchange with Peter saying, this will never happen to you. And how does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. Dear Peter is so like us. He went from being blessed for his divine insight to being cursed for his demonic blindness. Oh, how we need God-given vision from above, enabling us to understand with our minds and see with our eyes. And beyond that, to believing God when we can only see with the eyes of faith. Cheryl Jennings eventually went blind again. And beloved, the same thing can happen to us. May the Lord open the eyes of our hearts in order that we may never forget the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his inheritance in us, and his death-conquering power for us who believe. We need to cry out that, like the blind man in Luke 18, uh, who in response to Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you, replied, Lord, I want to see. I've asked the musicians to come back and lead us in a closing prayer of, uh, by song. So would you rise as they come to the platform and, and let us sing prayerfully the words of this old hymn and thoughtfully think seriously about the words that are written. Uh, and, um, and please... Um, Tell the Lord, I want to see. I want to see you. I want to see your glory. I want to see your power. I want to see what you see in me. Thank you.